Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that your word is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we look at it together this morning to understand it and to stand firm too. Even as it stands firm, may we stand firmly upon it and live our lives in accordance with its truths. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through the book of John, and we've been looking at the life of Jesus. We've gone away and come back to it on a number of occasions, and we've been particularly looking at, in recent weeks, uh, the miracle of the Lord Jesus with the resurrection of Lazarus, and then the aftermath of that as uh, Jesus spent some time with Lazarus and his family after raising him from the dead. And we've also seen in weeks before that, in the sermons that I gave uh, quite some time ago last year, that he also did other miracles, and one of those was the healing of this man who was born blind. So in John chapter 9, you have this extraordinary miracle, and then in John chapter 11, you have another extraordinary miracle. You have him opening the eyes of a man born blind, which is quite remarkable in itself, that a man who was born blind can suddenly see... And then we have this miracle of him raising Lazarus from the dead. And that's not the only miracle and miracles that the Lord Jesus did. No, he did many other miracles. Some of those are recorded in John's gospel. And many are recorded, of course, in the other gospels. And that's probably only even a taste of all the different miracles. Some of them are broadly uh, summarized that he did. He healed many other people with their sicknesses. He drove out many demons. Jesus did many extraordinary miracles while he was here on earth. And then we read this interesting statement after Jesus has done all these things, these fantastic miracles, even raising the dead. What do we read in the verses that we're looking at today, particularly verse 37? John chapter 12, verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. A remarkable statement. He has done these many, these many great miracles, even raising the dead in their presence. They know this man who was born blind. This is a wonderful uh, chapter in the scriptures. And when I preached on it, I thoroughly enjoyed it, John chapter 9, that they actually meet this man and they talk to this man and they see that he is this man who used to beg and now he can see. He has been healed in their presence. They know of Lazarus and how he was dead and now is alive. But instead of trusting in the Lord Jesus, we read in verse 37 that they would not believe in him. Why don't these people believe? This is the question that we want to ask as we look at that and we see the great miracles of the Lord Jesus. Why don't these people believe as they recognize that Jesus has done outstanding miracles, but they do not believe that he is the Christ? Well, Isaiah asked the same question. And we see that John references Isaiah here to help us to understand why people don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, even in the midst of astounding evidence that he is. What do we read in verse 38 and following? Verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's asking the question, same question we're asking today. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then what's the answer? 
Verse 39, for this reason they could not believe as because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah in his day, he experienced a hardening of people's hearts toward the message of the Lord, but he also saw to the future, to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he saw that people's hearts would be hard as well as God revealed that to him. And so why don't people believe in the Lord Jesus? It's because God has hardened their hearts. He has blinded their eyes, as it says in verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts. I prefer the word hardened there as used in other translations. The idea is of callousing, this word that speaks of hard callous. He has calloused their hearts. This is why people don't believe. Is that true? Are unbelievers blind? Do they have hard hearts? Is that why non-Christians don't believe? Well, yes. The Bible tells us that this is true, and so we should accept it. But also, as we look at unbelievers, our life experience with them, we do understand that they are just blind to the evidence. There's a simple way to see this. You go to an atheist, and you ask an atheist, what evidence do you need in order to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? to believe in God and accept his son. What evidence is sufficient for you to believe? And you get some very interesting responses, and usually they're a bit flabbergasted and they don't know what to say because they recognize within their hearts that they have a blindness towards God and they cannot accept any evidence. Even if they were to start hearing voices, if God was to start speaking to them, what would they do? They would dismiss it as, I'm going bonkers, I'm crazy. It's not God speaking to me. They would reject even that evidence if it started to happen to them. It's a very interesting thing. Ask atheist friends, what evidence do I need to show you in order that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And usually they don't have any evidence that they could say would convince them. Just as these Pharisees, these leaders, even rejected these extraordinary miracles of the Lord Jesus, they found some other explanation as to why he was able to do such things and rejected him because they were blind to it. Because the truth is, there is evidence all around us, all the time, that God exists and in his word that he has sent his Messiah. But people just reject that evidence. They refuse to accept it as evidence. I was even meeting with some members this week and we came outside and there was this beautiful moon up in the sky and one of the members said, look, how can people look at that and not see that there is a God? And I'd just been preparing this sermon. And I said, well, it's blindness. You look at that moon and say, there is a God. They look at the moon and they say, there is no God. They suppress the evidence. They are blind to that evidence. But as we look at this passage, we can have an understanding of why unbelievers reject the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also starts to trouble us. Many believers are quite troubled by these verses. Why are they troubled? Well, it seems unloving of God to blind people and to harden their hearts towards himself and then to one day judge them, as we know he will, for their unbelief, for the rejection of him. How can he be a loving and gracious God, a kind God, when he 
deliberately blinds people, when he deliberately hardens people's hearts, as it says to us there in verse 40 in that quote from Isaiah 6, which we had read for us earlier. Why does God do this? Isn't it, doesn't it show us that God is unloving? But the thing is, we have to understand that this is a judicial hardening, a judicial blinding of hearts and eyes towards him. See, the thing is, God blinds and hardens hearts that are already blinded and hardened towards himself. Their own unbelief has occurred, and therefore God continues to push them in that unbelief that they have, that he, he hardens and blocks their sight from himself. Now, this is hard for us to understand, so I thought I'd have an illustration to make it clear. An illustration might help us. Imagine two allied nations. We'll call one Earth and one Heaven. One's Earth and one's Heaven. These two nations. And Heaven actually helped Earth to establish itself and become a nation. And Heaven has communicated freely with Earth ever since and actually helped Earth as a nation. But then one day the President of Earth decides, I'm going to break our treaty with heaven. I'm going to cut off that treaty that we have and we're actually going to rebel against heaven and go to war against heaven. And the citizens of earth, they decide that's an excellent idea. And they too participate in the rebellion of earth against heaven. Now what is the response of heaven to this? Well, Heaven decides that it's going to cut all communication towards Earth, that it's going to go completely dark towards Earth. It's going to cut off television contact, radio contact, phone, internet, ambassadors, and erect a great wall between Earth and Heaven. Now, Earth still has evidence that Heaven exists and is good, but suppresses that truth all the time and is not interested in heaven any longer. They either attack heaven or ignore heaven, the citizens of earth. Now, what has led to the blindness that earth has towards heaven? Well, heaven stopped communication. Yes. But earth firstly rejected communication from heaven to begin with. The government of that of earth rejected heaven, and the people of earth rejected heaven. And so can we blame heaven for cutting off communication with a nation that is making war against it? No, we can't. It seems logical that a nation that is being attacked by another nation would stop communicating with that other nation. And this is what we have done with God. How so? Well, Adam, our first parent is our federal head. He represented humanity. When he was placed on earth, he was a representative of all humanity who would come from him. And then what did Adam do? He rebelled against God. He rebelled against his ally, God, his friend, rebelled against him. And as Adam's children, we've all joined Adam in his rebellion. It's not as though we say, well, Adam, he is our federal head. He's like our, our prime minister or our president. And we don't actually agree with his rejection of God. No, we all follow, all humanity has followed in his footsteps and have rejected God along with Adam. Every human is guilty of original sin, which comes from Adam as our federal head. 
we are also guilty of actual sin, that we have blinded our eyes and hardened our hearts as well in our actual sin towards God. And so then what has God done? As Adam rebelled against God and we have rebelled against God, well, God has blinded our eyes to himself and hardened our hearts towards him too. He has cut off knowledge that would lead us to worship him and warm our hearts towards himself. Unbelievers, all humanity, they function in this world, they live their lives out, but it's all in blindness towards God. Any understanding that they have towards God, they suppress that truth, they reject it, they turn a blind eye towards it and want to have nothing to do with God. So can we blame God for withdrawing his light from human eyes and warmth from human hearts when we are the ones who kicked it off? We are the ones who rebelled against him. We are the ones who put the shutters down and did not want to see God. And all God has done is, like I said in the kids' talk, he's superglued them down. We put them down, and then he has put superglue cement all over them. He says, you want to be hardened towards me? You want to be blind towards me? Well, here you go. This is a tragic truth to hear. It's a terrible statement about the human race, that we are all rebels against God. We are all people whom God has then blinded as we have chosen blindness towards him. But there is good news. There is good news, and it's even in this passage that we're looking at today. What do we read in verse 42? Verse 42 of John chapter 12. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. Yet at the same time, many amongst the leaders believed in him. God actually reveals himself to some sinful people so that they do believe in him, like these leaders that we read of in verse 42. What is this like? Well, think back to my illustration, heaven and earth, our two nations. Remember, earth has rebelled against heaven. They do not want communication with heaven any longer. They do not want to be interacting with heaven. And so heaven has decided, yes, we're cutting off communication with you too. But what what then happens? Well, heaven starts to actually interact with certain citizens within earth. Certain citizens are singled out by heaven for communication. And these earthly citizens that actually hear about heaven they start to see that heaven actually has all power and one day will administer all that power that they have to bring earth to submission. They also see that the citizens of heaven have great joy and peace, that it's a lovely nation to actually be a part of. And they also see the compassion, the kindness and the love of the leader of heaven that that nation who they've rejected in the past is actually a pretty good nation under a pretty good ruler. And they learn that even that ruler himself loves people so much and even loves citizens of earth so much that he would send his son to die on a fatal mission. What was that fatal mission? So that citizens of earth could actually become citizens of heaven and live in eternal happiness and joy. They learn these things. They see this evidence that heaven isn't so bad after all. I've been blind to the goodness of that nation. 
And what happens? The citizens of earth actually decide, I want to accept that offer from heaven, and I want to become a citizen of heaven. I want to one day go and be in heaven and experience the great joy and pleasure that will be in that nation, and also to meet the leader of that nation and to honour him and serve him in obedience. And so we see this happening as we look at verse 42. This illustration of the two nations illustrates what God is doing. He actually reveals himself to unbelievers. Some unbelievers start to understand by the Spirit that God does exist, that they've been blind all this time. They've been hardened towards him. But God is actually worth embracing. And they understand this because God communicates with them directly. He strips away whatever is blinding them. If we think of shutters that have been put down with cement there, he breaks them through those, lifts the shutters up, and he opens the eyes of these people, these sinful people, to see how wonderful he is. They start to understand that they have been misconceiving who God is, and they now see God in his glory. They understand how great his arm is. Interesting the way that um, uh, God is described as being revealed in verse 38. Verse 38 um, in John's Gospel, John 12, verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? And this is what unbelievers start to understand. They start to see the arm of God. And what kind of arm is God's arm? Well, in the past they thought God's arm was weak. And what could God do to me? And now they realize God's arm is very powerful. And they thought that God's arm... If he uses it at all, he uses it for evil. How many people have told you over your lifetime that if God was all-powerful, he would stop evil in this world? So he must be either not powerful or he is evil. He's using his power for evil in this world. But as they hear communication from God, these unbelievers actually understand that God's arm is an arm of justice. And he will use that powerful arm one day to judge All the human race and all knees will bow before him and he will judge them using that powerful arm of justice. But they also learn that his arm is an arm of grace and kindness and love and mercy. Unbelievers now understand that God is a God of justice and power, but he's also a God of love and mercy. And they know that he is a God of love and mercy. How? Supremely they know it by the fact that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for them so that they can become citizens of heaven and live forever in joy and peace and worship of this great God. And so we understand this is what happens when people become Christians. Their hearts are warmed with love to God. They no longer disbelieve God. Instead, by the revelation of God, as God opens their eyes to who he is and warms their hearts, softens their hearts, instead of disbelieving, they believe. They acknowledge that their God is the God who reigns supreme. Their God is the Lord Jesus Christ who came so many years ago. And this is a wonderful truth for us to see. Yes, it's a tragic thing 
to see that people have blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts towards God. And then God has said, okay, stay blind, stay hardened towards me. But then we see this wonderful truth in verse 42, yet at the same time, many among the leaders believed in him. And that is true today as well. Yes, there are many people who are blind, but there are some whom God has revealed himself to. And they now see and believe. And what does God require of such believers? Well, it's hinted at in verse 42, that they should confess their faith, that they should confess their faith. Verse 42, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. What's expected? That they would confess their faith. But these people weren't confessing their faith and are are condemned by John here for loving praise from men more than praise from God. There's this expectation that should be had of believers that once you become a Christian, that you will confess that you now have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you will sing that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind... Uh, was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. There's this expectation that you will confess this faith. But we also see that it is not easy to confess that faith. And we see that in these leaders of so many years ago. Why is it not easy? Well, think back to that illustration that I had of the nation of heaven and the nation of earth. Remember that the nation of earth rejected the nation of heaven and Heaven then ceased communication. But then heaven has been communicating with earth, with individuals on earth. And some of those individuals have actually been becoming citizens of heaven, even whilst they're citizens on earth. They've flipped and they've joined the nation of heaven. But now they're told by the leader in heaven, you'll have to stay on earth for what could be years. Possibly even as many as 80 or more years that you'll have to remain on earth before extraction and you're taken to heaven. But while you're there on earth, your orders from me as your new leader, you're a citizen of heaven now, but you're staying on earth for now. Your orders are to tell people about your citizenship in heaven. You are to tell them about heaven's glories and how you've come to see that heaven is a wonderful nation. And your ruler, he says, I will be monitoring you and watching that you fulfill your task of telling people about me and about the glories of heaven. And if you do well, I will honour you when you come into heaven, when I extract you eventually to come and dwell in heaven for all eternity. Now imagine living like that. You're a citizen of an enemy nation. And whilst you are living as a citizen in that enemy nation, you are to tell the people of that enemy nation that you actually belong to a different nation and your allegiance is sworn to that nation and that nation is actually really wonderful and they too should join citizenship with that nation, the nation of heaven. They too should flip and beswear allegiance to the enemy nation. What do you think the people of the nation of earth would do to such citizens? Well, 
At best, they would think them stupid and belittle them, or maybe crazy and ignore them or try and rehabilitate those citizens. At worst, they would persecute them as traitors. How can you live in this world and yet swear allegiance to another nation, an enemy nation? How can you do that? And this is what happens with Christians. We are people who live in this world, but this world is not our home. Our citizenship is a whole other nation. Our kings in this land, yes, we may bow to them in some respect. We may keep their laws. We may respect them. But realistically, we know that there's a greater king who is above them. And we follow him and him alone. It is far better for us to follow him, to be obedient to him, than to be obedient to the rulers of this world. And so is it not surprising that many Christians behave like the leaders do here in verses 42 and 43. Verse 42 and 43 again. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. This is a sad thing to see. That these people, yes, They affirmed that Jesus was their Messiah. They said that they believed that Jesus was their Messiah. But how much did they say it? Did they just say it in their heads? They just say it to a select few? They certainly didn't say it in a public way because they were afraid of what the Pharisees would do to them. But they should have confessed their faith, and we should today as well. We shouldn't learn from these guys as to what to do. We should learn from them of what we shouldn't do. We should be ones who confess our faith. There's no place for sleeper cells in the kingdom of God. You know what sleeper cells are? We're a foreign nation. It plants some sort of special agents in the enemy nation. And those agents, they stay there. They don't reveal that they're actually citizens of the other nation. They're actually covert agents. And they function in that society and they can function there for decades even before they're activated and then they suddenly show that they're actually, their allegiance was to another nation all along. That's not the place. Christians aren't like that. We aren't to be sleeper cells in this world. We're not on a covert mission and we hide our faith for decades until we're extracted to heaven at our death or when the Lord Jesus returns. No, there's no place for sleeper cells. We must confess our faith. Why should we confess our faith? Why shouldn't we do what the leaders did here? where they didn't confess their faith? Well, because if you don't confess your faith in the Lord Jesus as your Messiah, it may be that you don't actually have a true faith. You've got a false faith. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What's the expectation of those who are saved? That they confess with their mouth Jesus is Lord. Oh, with a little voice inside your head, with your mouth. What is your mouth? This thing that you flap day after day. You're meant to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if you do and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you don't confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and don't believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's it implying? You are not saved. If you want to know if you're saved, look at your mouth and do you confess your faith? 
We should confess our faith because if we don't, it could well be that that faith that you affirm in your head is actually a false faith and you're not saved. But if you are saved, why should you confess your faith? Well, because you are thankful to God. After all, he opened your blind eyes and softened your hard heart. How could you not swear allegiance to him and do what he has asked? And out of thankfulness that you are not going to be condemned on that last day, but instead you have eternal life. This is mentioned to us in verses 48 and 50 of John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 48, it says, and Jesus is speaking and he says, There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. That is supposed to be us. We're all supposed to be condemned at the last day because we all followed our federal head and rejected God. But instead we're not because God has graciously revealed himself to us. So we won't be condemned on that last day and we won't just not be condemned. We also have the eternal life that's mentioned in verse 50. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. How can we not confess our faith if God has been so gracious to us in opening our eyes, softening our hearts, saying that we are not condemned on the last day, and one day we will have eternal life with him? Why would we not confess our faith when he has been so good to us? Why wouldn't we do what he has asked and confess our faith? Another reason why we should confess our faith is because of the stupidity of hiding our faith. Now, people may think we're stupid for being Christians. They look at us and they say, why would you follow the Lord Jesus Christ? And they say, there is no evidence. And we look at the evidence and say, there is. They continue to look at us and think that we're crazy. Now, if we really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, why would we be afraid of men? as these leaders were so many years ago. What were they afraid of? They were afraid that they, they, it says in verse 42, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. They were afraid of men. Do you know how stupid that sounds? If you believe that Jesus is God's Messiah and that he has all power, that he has a powerful arm and he will use that arm for your good And then you go and bend the knee to people rather than God? It's absurd to say that you trust in an all-powerful God who is working for your good and then to be afraid of humanity. Why would you be afraid of humans when all they can do is destroy your body at the best at the end of the day? That's all they can do is destroy your body. Whereas God has power over eternity and what happens in the future ages. So we should confess our faith because it's stupid what these people are doing here. It's so foolish that they would be afraid of men whilst they claim that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They claim that Jesus is the Messiah, at least in their heads. But then they're afraid of humans. And if we, we should, another reason why we should confess our faith is because we long for praise for God and from God rather than praise from men. Verse 43. So they're afraid of what would happen to them, but they're also afraid of what they wouldn't receive from men. 
And that's the case for so many Christians today. They're so interested in men extolling them. We want the media to say nice things about us. We want the government to say nice things about us. We want our friends and neighbours and family to think that we're just peachy. But it won't come if they are still enemies of the living God. Yes, they may say some nice things. There may be a bit of cultural Christianity that's around us. And so generally speaking, they may think nice things about you. But once they learn that you're really committed to God, usually they won't want to praise you at all. They'll put you down as crazy, disturbed, just plain foolish. But we shouldn't care because we want praise from God more than we want praise from men. And so therefore, we willingly confess our faith. So if we're Christians, we should confess our faith. We shouldn't learn from the example here as to what we should do. Instead, we should learn what we shouldn't do. We've got many reasons to be thankful to God and confess our faith. I just want to speak here at the end, if you're not a believer, and you have been looking at this, and I've said some dreadful things about believers today, as I've been uh, unbelievers, as I've been led to from the scriptures. That you're blind, that you're dead, as that translation says, or have a hard heart. I want to speak to you and say, don't miss out on being a part of heaven, and miss out on seeing the most glorious sight you can ever see, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will use my words to awaken you today to how wonderful God is, that you will understand that you are a rebel against God and his arm is not weak towards rebels. His arm is not weak. You will be punished one day. You think you can run away from God. His arm is longer than the distance that you can run. He will always bring you back and judge you accordingly. But if you turn... God's arm is gracious and kind and will welcome you with a loving embrace into his family. And so I encourage you, don't harden your heart and blind your eyes any longer to who God is. Because if you keep on hardening yourself to the gospel message, if you keep hardening yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, you run the risk that God will apply more and more cement to the shutters that you are putting down over your eyes. And one day, you will be condemned for all eternity for that hardness of heart and that blindness that you've created within your own eyes. Turn to him now. Trust in him. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah and get that eternal life that he offers us in the pages of these scriptures. Let's come to God in prayer now. Let's speak to him. Lord, we thank you for opening the eyes of many here in this room to believe in Jesus. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to confess our faith. And, Lord, we pray that you would use our confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to open the eyes of many around us who at this time are blind and cannot see how glorious you actually are. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.